So death was not a part of God's original design for his creation. Death is not natural. We can forget that sometimes because we're so accustomed with death. From the moment of our conception, we know that we're on a slow, sometimes not so slow, but steady march towards the grave. And so we can begin to just think that's just the way things are. Plants die, animals die, stars die, man lives, and then he dies. But God's original design was for man as the crowning piece of his creation. Man is that which was made in his image to live in dominion over that which he, has, he had created as his representative and to live in perfect fellowship and communion with God for all eternity. No separation. No break, no death. It wasn't until sin. It wasn't until man was tempted by the serpent, following after the evil desires of his own heart, reaching out his hand and taking that fruit. It wasn't until sin that death came and entered in. Scripture tells us that sin entered in through one man, and with that sin came death. And because all men sin, all men will die. This doesn't mean that God was caught off guard. It doesn't mean that Death is somehow outside of God's control. It was a curse. He told Adam on that day, you've come from the dust. Because you have sinned and rebelled against me in this way, to the dust you will return. Your life is going to be hard, and then you're going to die. This was a result of sin. This was the picture of death. Dear friends, death is not your friend. Death is a curse, and it is an enemy. It is a grotesque and violent consequence for sin. It is taking that which God has created as one. Out of the dust, he took the man and he created him. Physical body and spirit. It is taking that which God has created as one and ripping it apart, tearing it apart. God takes man out of the dust, sin and death, put him right back. So we look with great anticipation. Who will overcome this enemy? Who will overcome death? And for the first two years of his earthly ministry, Jesus was showing that he had the power to overcome all the, all the consequences of the curse. Illness, uncleanliness, Demon possessions. And then we come to this morning's text where he puts on display for us again the ability, the power, the authority to overcome that last great enemy that is, that is death. He would, he would say just a few days before his own death, he would say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before his own death, before his own resurrection, before his own empty tomb, he was giving evidence to the people that were there in first century Palestine, and he was giving evidence to us today. Do you believe? So that we could join with them. We have the benefit of now looking backwards through that cross, looking backwards to that tomb. So the question before you today is, do you believe? Because what he says is that in believing, in being joined with him, though you die, you shall live. Death holds no sway over you. So go ahead and stand to your feet as we return to Mark's gospel. 
We're finishing up the uh, fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. We want to hit it with a running start, so we're going to pick up last week's text as well, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she had said, if I touch even his garments, I shall be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples with him said, You see a crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John and the brother of John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him in and went to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. All God's people said, amen. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. So what we find here in the second half of the, the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel is a sandwich of sorts, a story within a story, or more precisely, a miracle within a miracle. This was a normal pattern for Mark. We found this back in the third chapter where Jesus' family had heard the things that he was doing, and they determined that he was crazy, and so they decided they were going to go get him and bring him home. And then immediately Mark breaks away, and he shows us this scene where Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, and they're accusing him of healing by the power of Satan. Then after he sets them straight, we find the family arising and finding out that bloodlines aren't enough. It's sitting at the feet of Jesus and doing the things that he say. That's what gains you access to the king and the kingdom. This is a, just a beautiful, beautiful form of writing that Mark employs. It really frames the picture well for us. It really brings some things into focus for us. And so that's what he gives us here. And it began in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell down at his feet. You'll remember that Jesus had gone across to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. 
He had been confronted there by a man that was possessed with many demons, and that after cleansing that man, the people were terrified. By the power of Jesus, they were terrified. So they begged him to go. So Jesus crossed back over to the western side, very likely to Capernaum, his hometown. So he has returned back to that place. And that there was a great crowd that was waiting for him there. There were always great crowds waiting for Jesus. You don't multiply bread, heal the sick, cleanse the unclean, and not have great crowds following you around. And one of the people in that crowd was this man named Jairus. He was a ruler in the synagogue, a layperson, but a ruler in the synagogue, and he had a great deal to lose by coming to Jesus Christ. Because the religious establishment, they had joined together with the politi political establishment, and they determined they were going to destroy Jesus Christ. So there had to have been something in this man's life that drove him to the point of desperation where he was going to come and seek out this Jesus, knowing that it could cost him his place. But there was something in his life, something that he wanted more desperately than to be called ruler. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The man's only daughter, a 12-year-old little girl, she was ill. She was sick to the point of death. Now, Jairus had probably seen Jesus heal some people. He would have most assuredly seen some people that Jesus had healed. And in his desperation, in his pain, in his anxiety, you see, dear friends, when God takes you to a point of desperation and then that meets the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're very likely to find yourself right where this guy is. On your face, at the feet of Jesus Christ, pleading with him earnestly, begging him, Jesus, would you just come and heal my little girl? And Jesus agrees. You can, you can, you can imagine the desperation immediately turning to just elation in this man's life. Would you please just come and lay hands on my little girl that she would be made well? And Jesus agrees, but there's a crowd. The crowd was always there, and they were always restricting movement. There was one lady within that crowd, a woman. She, too, was desperate. She, too, had heard about Jesus Christ, and so she, too, fell at his feet. But first, she thought, I'll just touch the hem of his garment. I'll just come and touch the hem of her garment. See, her theology wasn't all that right. She maybe thought that the power of Jesus, the healing abilities of Jesus, she may not have understood that those were in the person of Jesus. We think that way sometimes. Like Jesus is just Santa Claus throwing out gifts, not recognizing that it's in him that all these things are found. But out of compassion and love, he allowed the woman to be healed. She was healed and she just touched his garment. And she was happy with that. Twelve years this woman had been an outcast. Because of her bleeding problem, she was unclean and couldn't even enter the temple or the synagogues. But she was happy with that. I'll go, just make me like other people, right? Just make me like everybody else. Make it where I can just get back into the church house. Jesus wasn't going to let her settle for that. He had something so much more. So he sought her out. He called her and she came. She falls down at his feet and she tells him everything. Not just him, everyone that was there, they heard it all. The story. What was once shame is now glory. And she sits there at his feet. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Not that there's power in her faith, but the faith was the way that she reached out her hands and she received this gift. This gift, because apparently she believed in Jesus as more than Santa Claus, more than a miracle worker, more than a man of power. She recognizes that he was king and he was Lord. Because it's only repentant faith that can lead to this kind of salvation. The word there was sozo. More than just physical healing, it was deliverance. It was salvation that came to this woman this day. All the while, Jairus stands by. 
you can imagine the anxiety that's now building up within him because the clock is ticking. The little girl's still alive, but the hourglass, the sand is moving quickly through it. Her life is surely fading. And every minute that Jesus spends here talking to this woman or teaching the crowd is one second that will never get back. We don't hear any words from Jairus, but you've got to imagine that he's over there and he is pacing back and forth. And he's saying, please, please, Jesus, yes, she is your daughter. This woman is your daughter. You have now saved her. Now what about my daughter? Can we go? I know how I feel in my own spirit when Jesus doesn't act in accordance with my wishes, when he doesn't act along my timeline. I put, these, I put these parameters around Jesus. I say, Jesus, act in this way. And then when he doesn't, my head wants to explode. I want to curse and cry out at him. We don't hear any of that from Jairus. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's household someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? See, apparently people had known where he was going. Maybe he told the people in his house, look, I'm going to go back to the sea and see if Jesus has returned. Or maybe I've heard that he's coming back across the sea. Some people have spotted a boat. They believe that Jesus is coming back. I'm going to go back to the sea and see if I can find him there. And then once I find him there, I'm going to ask. And maybe if I ask, he will come and heal my little girl. But this is all we've got left. There's nothing else. She's sick to the point of death. I'm going to go and I'm going to find this Jesus. But she couldn't hold on any longer. The little 12-year-old girl had died. And you see, for the world, that's the end of the story, Right? Why are you bothering with Jesus? Maybe there was something he could have done while the little girl was alive, but she's dead. Quit fooling with him. We've got to get back to a funeral. Because to the world, death is permanent. To the world, death is natural, and death is permanent. They say, well, you go back. Because they think it's too late. Too late for Jesus to implant himself in this story. It's too late for Jesus to act. But for those of us that know, for those of us that have encountered the living God, for those of us that know that he makes men out of dust, that he speaks stars, that he causes dry bones to rise, we know there's no such thing as too late. There's no such thing as too far gone. There is no undoable thing for God. This was the belief that we see in another resurrection story. There's a woman named Martha, and her brother Lazarus had died. He had been dead for, been dead for four days. They had sent word for Jesus to come, and as Jesus is coming along the way, this Martha, she apparently believed. She apparently knew that there was no such thing as too late, too far gone. John eleven twenty one through 22. She says to the Lord, if you had been here, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Memorize those words, church. Even now, even when all hope is lost, even when there's no possible way of escape that you can see in the middle of this situation even now even now Jairus as your daughter is dead even now as the world is telling you that you need to leave this Jesus alone and get back to your family even now God is not done even now nothing is unreachable or undoable with the living God even now and Jesus had promised Martha your brother will live your brother will rise she clung on to that promise. She trusted his promises. Verse 36. But overcoming what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler, excuse me, overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. The word for overhearing here can also mean ignoring, but either way, he didn't mess with them. He didn't acknowledge them. He didn't speak to them. He didn't do any of that. He looks to this Jairus and he tells him, do not fear, only believe. This can also be interpreted as do not fear, keep on believing. 
don't let go of your belief. Do not fear, keep on believing. Persist in the faith. That's what he's calling him to. Continue in the faith. Endure in the faith. Do not stop short. Keep coming. You see, apparently Jairus had faith. He believed at very least at this point that Jesus was a healer. He believed at very least that Jesus could heal his his 12-year-old little girl. That's what had driven him to come and seek Jesus out. And what he's saying is, you're not there yet, don't stop. This thing isn't over. Faith is no good if faith doesn't endure. Faith is no good if faith doesn't persist. Keep coming, keep going, keep moving, even now. Even as your friends tell you to give up. Continue in the faith. Keep on. And Luke adds that he told Jairus, the little girl will be well. Same promise that he made to Martha. The person that you love will be made well. He doesn't make that promise to everybody, but he had made it to them. And on the basis of that promise, he's standing there before this man named Jairus, and he's saying, listen, I know these people mean well, and I know they're your friends. I know how scared you are. I know how much you love that little girl. I know how helpless things looked, but look to me. You came to me in the first place. You had some level of faith in me in the first place, and I'm telling you to persist, to continue, to persevere, to endure. Keep coming with me. Don't put your eyes on them. Don't listen to them. Don't even listen to your own heart or your own emotions, your own experiences that you know that little girls don't just rise from the dead. Don't listen to any of those things. Listen to my voice and keep coming. Don't you see that this is the way God causes people to endure? You don't know what the perseverance of the saints looks like? This. The word of God calling out to his people. God's people holding on to his promises in the middle of things that seem impossible. Too late, too far gone. The perseverance of the saints is listening and believing the promises of God and saying, even now. And it's his voice. It's his voice that does the calling. It's his voice that tells him to continue coming. Do not lose the faith. Keep on believing. John 10, 27 through 28 speaks about this beautifully. As Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you see the way Jesus talks about eternal security within the terms of his voice and our following? That as his sheep, as those that are his, we hear his voice, and it is irresistible. This is the most magnificent thing that we have ever heard, that same voice that calls us back to life. Do we have the free will to reject it? Absolutely. Jairus, on that day, could have looked at Jesus and said, you know what, I'm done with you. I waited on you long enough, and you jacked around with this woman that couldn't even come into the synagogue where I rule. So I'm done with you. Your way didn't work. My little girl's dead. But apparently, Jairus was one of his sheep and heard his voice, and he continued to follow. He continued to go. This is the way that God guards the imperishable, undefilable promise, the treasures in heaven. This is how he does it. I think we over-mystify it sometimes. We forget about the power of his word. We forget that this is the tool. This is the way he's calling us to come, to come, to come. And to the rest of the world, it sounds like nothing. We're going to see that in this text. Other people hear these promises and they laugh because not everybody are a sheep. Same promises that we hear that cause us to persevere and to endure and to keep going and to cry out even now, the rest of the world thinks it's ridiculous. We're fools. But for those that are his sheep, this word means everything, and they keep following. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. He wouldn't allow anybody else to come with him to the man's house. See, God was continuing, or Jesus was, was, was continuing to narrow down. We're going to see it at various points throughout 
his ministry that he would really restrict access even further. You'll, you'll remember that there's those that he only spoke to in parables. There's those that he only spoke to in parables. He wasn't going to reveal them anymore. There were those that he would call aside and he would speak to them plainly. And he would explain those parables. And then apparently there were these three. Every once in a while, Andrew would be in the mix, but it, Peter, James, and John, these three, and we don't know why he chose these three. Was it because they were some of the earliest called? Was it because they were more faithful? Was it because three was a manageable number? We don't know the answer to that. But we know that there are scenes where Jesus is going to reveal his glory in very special ways, and he was only going to allow these three to see it. Like the Mount of Transfiguration. As he went up there and he revealed, he gave them a peek of his glory. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to his father. It's these three. He didn't give the same access to everybody. Everybody doesn't get to see the same things. But these three were about to see something magnificent. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping, and they were wailing loudly. So apparently this girl had been dead long enough that the funeral was already in full swing at this point. Now, funerals in Palestine, they were uh, very different, and, and much of the world today, very different than the funerals that we're used to. Funerals here today are very somber, very quiet, very very soft events. People, they, they speak in hushed tones, and, and, and they, they nod, and they smile a lot. And I almost always say something stupid. I like to wink. My girls hate it. I, I wink at them all the time. I, I, sometimes I wink in staff meetings, and I work with mostly girls, and that creeps them out. But I was at a funeral one time, and after the funeral's over, you know, you go and you you shake hands and you give your condolences to the family. And so I'm going down the line of this family. Their father has just died. And I'm going down the line of this family. And I get to this one. And she was the prettiest one of the bunch, too. I don't know why I did this. I get to this one pretty young lady. And I go, so sorry for your loss. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I did that. I wish there had been some flute players and people yelling, and I could have just snuck out the back. Funerals then were a whole lot different than that. It was loud, and it was robust, and it tells us here that there was, there was flute players, and there was crying, and there was hollering, and there was ripping of clothing, and just a, just a loud and a, and a ruckus affair, because this was a Jewish funeral. And as with all things Jewish, there were rules. One of the rules for Jewish funerals is that even amongst the poorest people, you are going to have two flute players and one professional paid wailing woman. Now, part of the reason here we're told is to just illustrate the, the, the grief that the family is healing. But in addition to that, I believe it, it served as some kind of, almost like a white noise, so that the family could just truly mourn it wouldn't be all eyes on them. You see what I'm saying? Is there was noise and there was flutes and there was other people screaming. You wouldn't just look at the mother that was there just broken and wailing and, and, and falling out on the floor. But Jairus wasn't a poor man, and so surely there would have been more than two flute players, more than one wailing woman. This may have been a whole band of people here. Matthew tells us that the crowd was in noisy disorder. That's the scene that Jesus and his disciples are walking up on. Jesus and Peter and James and John, that's the scene that they're walking up on here. And here's what Jesus does. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. No wonder Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Can you imagine the people in the room? Jesus, that's not funny. We'd rather deal with that guy that winks at people. It's not funny to come in here and say that this little girl's asleep. We've seen dead people. 
We know what dead people look like. And now you're coming in here making a joke by saying that this little girl is asleep. So what's Jesus talking about here? Was the little girl asleep? Was she perhaps in a coma? There's some people that like to say, well, she was just in a coma. She was in a deep sleep. These are people that knew death. People died at home. They buried their own. They knew what dead people looked like. So what was it? Well, we, we know from Scripture that it's common for God's Word to talk about death as sleep. As a matter of fact, just two Wednesday nights ago, as we were reading through the uh, 13th Psalm, we read these words. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The Apostle Paul, in a number of his letters, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, a number of times as he's talking about death, as he's talking about the resurrection, he refers to death as sleep. And then Jesus himself, going back to that other resurrection with Lazarus, Jesus himself, as he's preparing his disciples for what they're about to go see, he says this in John 11, 11 through 15, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, then he will recover. Catch that key word there, right? Recover. They know it's more than sleepy sleep. They know it's more than regular sleep. They know it's a sleep that requires a recovery. They're still confused. Lord, if he's just asleep, then he's going to recover. Verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that they meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Not uncommon in Scripture for them to talk about, talk about death as sleep. Because here's the thing. As the world believes that death is natural and they believe that it's permanent, we know on the authority of God's word, we know that death is not natural. It's a result of sin. It's a part of the curse. And what Jesus is proving right here is that it's not permanent. He's equating it to sleep. Think about what sleep is. You check out for a bit. The end of every day is a way of God reminding us of our frailty, reminding us that the world goes on without us, reminding us that we need him and he doesn't need us. He causes us to die every night. We go unconscious. We close our eyes, some more than others. We say dead to the world, right? When somebody's really sleeping hard, you don't know what's going on around you. Things beyond your control and outside of you are going on. What Jesus is saying here is that it's like that. It's like that. That At the end of this sleep, when your time's up, either because you've gotten enough rest or because somebody comes and stirs you, you wake up out of that sleep. He's saying, look, physical death, it's like this. At the time of your death, your body is laid into the ground. From dust you came, and from dust you shall return. At, the moment of that, at that moment, your body goes into the ground. Now, you don't cease to exist. There's an intermediate state is what it's called. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. This is key now. When you die, your body doesn't immediately, the saints of, of, of God, they don't immediately take their bodies with them into heaven. Your body goes into the dust, and your soul goes to be with the Lord. And in this intermediate state, it is as if your body, as if your body were sleeping. Your body is in the dirt until somebody comes and wakes it up. We know that at that final trumpet, when Jesus Christ returns, that's what he's pointing forward here, to here. That final trumpet, when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to speak just like he does to this little, little girl, and bodies are going to rise. Like they've just been taking a nap. A thousand years, a million years, who knows how long you'll have been in the dirt at that point. But he will speak, and that body will rise just as if you were getting up for a nap. So it's no more difficult for him to wake up a little sleeping 13-year-old or 12-year-old girl from a nap than it is to raise bodies from the dead. That's what he's saying here. It's not permanent. It's temporary. Verse 40, and they laughed at him. They laughed. People then laugh at Jesus. People today laugh at Jesus. Because the things that he says, 
Apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit, apart from eyes that, eyes that see and ears that hear, this stuff is ridiculous. We forget that sometimes. Those of us that have grown up in the church, hearing about a resurrected Savior, hearing about men made out of dust, boats on a, on, 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 floating out in a flood, Jesus calming storms, people with demons, that's craziness, unless it's true. And we go out and we tell these stories to people, and we wonder, why don't you just believe? Why don't you just believe? Because apart from the Holy Spirit, they can't believe. They couldn't believe, and so they laugh at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went, there, they went to where the child was. Another show of insiders and outsiders. Those that were on the inside, because of their laughter, they are put outside. Those that believed and trusted in Jesus Christ and were on the outside, they were brought onto the inside. All about your trust, all about your faith, all about your continuing to believe and follow after Jesus Christ. It was only going to be this child's mother and father, Peter, James, and John. To those that have, more will be given. To those that have not, even what they have will be taken away. He wasn't going to continue to put his glory before these people that laughed at his words. If you can't believe in my words, you're not going to see my glory. Because it's not going to mean anything to you. There's a story in Luke that Jesus tells about a rich man and a poor man that each die. The rich man isn't given a name. The poor man is named Lazarus, interestingly. And so what we read, though, is that they die and, and, and that the poor man goes into paradise and the rich man goes into Hades, a place of, place of eternal, eternal torment. And he's there and he's crying out and he's saying, Father Abraham, would you just send this poor man to go to my brothers and warn them that this place is real, warn them that they need to believe, warn them that they don't join me here. And this is what Abraham says to the man, Luke 16, 31. If, you do not hear Moses, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He's saying if you won't listen to the word of God, Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament. If you won't listen to the word of God, then somebody rising from the dead, that ain't going to mean squat to them. Seeing a little girl rise from the dead? Seeing Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? Why didn't everybody just believe once he was risen? He showed himself. Why didn't everybody who saw him, physically saw him, didn't just hear the story secondhand or thirdhand? Why did not everybody who encountered the risen, why didn't everybody believe? Everybody that heard the story that he had been risen, why didn't they all believe? Because it's not going to mean anything to you if you don't believe the words of God. You're not going to understand what you're looking at. You're not going to attribute it to him and to his power, so you're not going to believe. It's going to mean nothing to you. And so I will not continue to put pearls before swine. You laugh at my words, you will not see this act of glory. Now get out. It's interesting, too, that they were laughing. That mourning wasn't real. You'll go from mourning and crying to laughing? So he tells them, get out. You'll notice here that you hadn't heard a word from Jairus. Jairus, excuse me. You haven't heard a word from Jairus. Hadn't heard anything from his wife. He hadn't heard anything from Jairus since he first went to find Jesus. We have no indication that Jairus doubted at any moment. We just know that he kept following with Jesus. We know that he went to Jesus seeking help. Jesus told him, even now, do not doubt. Keep believing. Don't stop believing. Don't lose your faith. Continue coming with me. The girl will live. Holding on to those promises. He never says another word. He's just following after Jesus. Verse 40, 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. So Jesus takes the little girl by the hand. And, and, and we know, those of us that have any familiarity with Old Testament law, 
We know that dead bodies, just like lepers, just like women with bleeding problems, they are unclean. And that anyone who touches them, that they themselves become unclean. But with Jesus Christ, it is not so. He makes them clean. It's a beautiful display of his love and compassion. He didn't just come to put his power on display. He came to show his love. He came to touch the unclean. He came to meet people right where they are in their brokenness and their uncleanliness and their sinfulness, their lostness, their desperation, their stinkiness, their fall all over you crowdedness. He came to meet them right where they are. And we see incredible power in the words of Jesus Christ. And we see incredible love and compassion in his touch. Look, it's one thing for me to speak a word to a brother, but to come out and to touch him. Especially in this day and age, right? When distance is, is being preached. But to touch someone that is known unclean. That's to go and stand before the priest to be called clean in order to even come back into the temple, into the synagogues. That's who Jesus is, and that's where he was. He was coming. He was going to touch her. And he says to her, Talitha, kumi, it's Aramaic. There were three major languages that were spoken in Israel at that time. The first language of the Jews was Hebrew. It's the language of Moses. It was the language of the Old Testament. It was maybe a language going all the way back to, all the way back to Father Abraham. But it, was, it was the language of the Jewish people. But as they went away into exile, many of them lost the ability to speak it. So it really became a, a language of religion and of the liturgy and of... Right? It wasn't just the language that people spoke in everyday terms. In addition to that, people spoke Greek. Greek had been spoken there for many centuries. Many of the educated Romans would have spoken both Latin and Greek, and so Greek would have been a language that the Romans and the Jewish people could have spoken, many of them, back and forth to each other. But then the everyday, the common man's language was Aramaic, the language that they had brought back with them from exile. People a whole lot smarter than me say that almost all of Jesus' teaching and preaching would have been in Aramaic. So that all of the Greek New Testament that we go to for our translations into English, even those themselves were translations of J Jesus' Aramaic teaching. That's why you see some of these differences in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically. But he would have been speaking in Aramaic, and there are these times when Mark sees fit to give us the original Aramaic. It just adds some flavor. It adds some flavor to the story. It gives us some pictures. We believe one of those is when Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. As he was there on the cross. Oh, excuse me, as he was in the, uh, in the garden. Or as he, as he was there on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see these, just these touches of, of flavor, of, of, of first person being there that, that we see from these, from these testimonies of Jesus. And so he says here, Talitha, kumi, kumi means rise. Talitha means a little girl. It can also mean little lamb. So you see the precious nature of this as he reaches out his hand and he takes this little girl and he says, little lamb, I say to you, arise. He has concern for this girl. This wasn't just about showing everybody that he is the powerful Christ. This wasn't just about proving a point. He had concern for this little lamb and he says to her, little lamb, arise. And I'd point you to the simplicity here. In the middle of all this commotion, Jesus isn't dancing around. He isn't cutting, cutting himself. He isn't rich, ripping his robe. In the middle of chaos and complete peace, with just a word, Jesus rises this girl. Just as he does out on the water, just as he does in the face of a man possessed with demons. Complete peace and calmness. He just speaks a word. Little lamb, I say to you, arise. I'd also point you, point you to the authority in his word. Little lamb, I say to you, arise. Lazarus, I say to you, come out. 
Again, these aren't the prophets of Baal, cutting themselves and hooping and hollering. This isn't even Elijah and Elisha praying to God. This is the Son of God with the authority in himself to say, I'll say to you, little lamb, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Would you expect anything less? Immediately. Immediately. Have you learned to love that word yet? When Jesus shows up and immediately, with a word, with a touch, immediately the girl is up. Dead as a doornail one minute, and now she's up, and she's walking, and she's eating, showing she's truly alive. She didn't need rehab. She didn't need to regain her strength in a moment immediately, right back to doing the things that normal 12-year-old little girls do. So what do we make of this story? What do we do with this? Because we know that the promise in this is not that Jesus is going to heal every single one of our little girls. Because the fact of the matter is, this little girl eventually died. Lazarus died again. We know the promise isn't that he's going to heal everybody that ever gets sick. We know that's not true. We know it's not true practically. We know it's not true theologically. We know that that's not it. So what do we make of this then? What is Jesus showing us here in this raising of this precious little girl? We would read a little bit later as Jesus is talking to some Jewish leaders in John 5, 25. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's, re- he's reassuring Jairus there, Jairus there. And he's reassuring us today that just as I raise this little girl, in the end, you too will rise. This isn't just about raising this little girl. It's about a promise that I will raise you too. Just as waking somebody up from sleep, that you too, in the end, that you will rise. That those that are found in me, those that endure, those that continue in the faith, those that hold on to my promises, that when the end comes, I will speak and you too will rise. Though you die, you shall live in me. This isn't a parlor trick. This isn't just some some power disconnected from me. If you are found in me, though you die, you shall live. And the death is not the end of the line for the child of God. That heaven, as awesome as it is, that being in heaven in some disembodied state, separated from our physical bodies, that's not the end of the line either. That even as we are in heaven, we will await that final day. Paul talks about it, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. When the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will first rise, then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. That's the promise. The ultimate promise for the child of God is not floating around in heaven absent your body. That there's going to come a day when that final trumpet sounds and this body I say this at every funeral, at every single graveside. I say this body, this very body, no matter what state it's in, when Jesus Christ returns, it will be made whole and glorious and perfect. That's the promise. This very same body you live in today, it will be completely transformed, a body like his, perfect and glorious. And it is in that body that you'll reign with him for all eternity. That's a promise. If you don't seem jazzed about that, fine, I'll enjoy it. Y'all can float around. But it's the promise that he's given us. So as he's standing beside the bed of this little lamb, he's pointing forward. He's pointing forward to the cross. He's saying, at the cross, I'm going to destroy death once and for all. At the cross, that final enemy, you're going to see that I've defeated it. But he's pointing beyond that even to that final day when all bodies will rise. They will hear his voice, and they will rise just as if they had been asleep. So he's saying here, do not doubt, keep on believing on account of this promise. Because here's the thing, death is still here. 
Even though it's defeated foe, he still allows it. This is an act of grace now. It's an act of grace that he allows death to remain. He's saying, I'm waiting until the last of my saints has been called. Waiting until the last of you that are going to come to me in faith. I'm waiting until that moment when the last of you have come to me. And then, and then that final enemy will be defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 says this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after de- God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That death is a defeated enemy, but we are waiting until those last days. We continue to live in a world surrounded by death. I did a funeral yesterday, Friday. I did a funeral. We're going to have more funerals in the future. We continue to live in a world surrounded by death because while it is defeated, it is still here. And what he's saying is, I have defanged it. While you're to hate death, while you're to cherish life, you're never to fear it. We're told in Scripture, Hebrews Hebrews 2.15 tells us that, that the fear of death is a tool in the hands of the enemy, that he uses it to enslave you. We saw that out on the boat with Jesus' disciples. Fear of losing their life, the fear of death caused them to doubt, caused them to act as cowards. Cause them to doubt the goodness and the abilities of God. He's saying, you don't need to fear like that. There's no reason for you to fear death the way the rest of the world fears death. And as a result of that, you don't need to try and hold on to your life as if that's the point of everything. Yes, we cherish life. Yes, life is precious. Yes, we honor it. Yes, we hate death. We recognize it as an enemy and a curse. But that's not the end-all, be-all. Just to hold on to our physical life. And we recognize that even in death, we are joined with Jesus Christ. He himself who tasted death and overcame death. Philippians 3.10. We know that in death, we may know him. And we may know the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. So that we know that walking through death's door, as violent, as tragic as that is, it only leads to glory. So there's no fear there. There There is no gripping tightly onto our life as if it's everything. As a matter of fact, we hold on to it like all of God's gifts, loosely. We lay it on the table. We join with Paul in crying out, I do not count my life as of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's not saying that life isn't valuable. He isn't saying that life isn't precious. He's saying that it is way short of accomplishing the mission for which God has left me here, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finishing the race that he set before me, that is everything. And if it means that I lose my life, if it means that I lay down my life in the process, glory be to God. It was a good gift from him, and I turn around and I give it back to him. Say, God, this was yours in the first place. Every second of every life, every breath that I breathe, every time my heart pumps, it is all from you. It is all yours to be used as you see fit. Ring me out and put me up wet. Use me up. I don't want to leave anything on the table when this life is over. God, if this life is over tomorrow, may I go all in for everything. I'm not going to be a coward. I love life. I love life. I cherish life. From unborn life to 100-year-old life, we cherish life. From special needs life to completely healthy life. From sinner's life to saint's life. From the unsaved to the believer. We cherish all life, but it's not ours. We've been bought at a price. We are no longer our own. So that every second we live in this life, we live to the glory of God. If he sees fit to take us out today, then he sees fit to take us out today. But we're going to be used up completely and wholly without an ounce of fear, without an ounce of stutter stepping, without one bit of backing up. We charge headlong into the most dangerous of situations, saying, God, this life was yours all along. I give it now to you. 
That's the gospel message. That's the story of this little girl, this little lamb. That's the promise that God has made to you, and that's the promise that I'm putting before you today and saying, will you endure? Will you hold on to that promise? Will you listen to the, to the words of your shepherd, and will you continue to follow after his voice? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are so very faithful. Father, you have said in your word that you knew the days of our life when they were not yet. That even when we were in our mother's womb, you were forming us there. You knew every hair on our head and every second that we would live on this earth. So we thank you, Father, that we don't need to sit down and worry about such things. That we can trust them to you. That our job is just to continue to move forward in faith. To continue to move towards your voice. To continue to trust your promises. That while we cherish and we thank you for our life. We thank you for all life. We thank you for unborn life. We thank you for sick life. We thank you for lost life. We thank you for saved life. We thank you for all life that you have given. We will not hold on to it so tightly as to cause us to drift away from the calling that you've placed on our lives. That we would view this day and every day as an opportunity to be used for you, for the purposes of your kingdom, and to draw others into you. So, Father, use us in that way. In these moments, as you use these bodies to deliver up the praises that you are due, Father, we pray that they would be pleasing to your ears. We pray that we would sing truth about you and that that truth would just ring in our hearts, Father, that as we leave this place, we would be changed. We love you, we trust you, and we thank you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.